you all glory and honor and praise for who you are, the God who's created all things and who holds all things together by your word. This morning, God, as we come from many different places, God, would you ground us in this word, your Bible, your scripture, God, the story about a man who struggled uh, but who had faith in the midst of all the struggle. And for some of us, God, this morning, we need a word of faith. We need a word that we can leave with more faith than we came in with. For some of us, this is a difficult conversation because faith and doubt are always uh, uh, partners, God, that live in our lives. So God, today, would you ground us in your word and your truth, in your story that we might live and that uh, we might share your good news and your glory with the world. This morning, God, I pray you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, amen. Well, today, I want to talk about the story of Abraham. And it was read well a moment ago, but there's a lot more to that story that I'll share in a moment. But I want to share a question that I was struggling with all week as I read this passage that I want us to struggle with today. Really, it's more of a problem that I see with Christianity as we see it. And the problem is this. We want Christianity to be conventional. And really, you could fill that blank in in several different ways. I was struggling with how to communicate that. But we want Christianity to be easy. We want Christianity to be mainstream. We want Christianity to be cool and easy and conventional. So I'll share this term, and I'm kind of struggling with all of that because I think it's a problem that we need to address. Because in reality, as Scripture shares the story, Christianity is not conventional. It's actually the opposite of that. It's foolish. And Scripture continues to point to that, and we struggle to believe it in our world. Because let's be honest, things have changed in our culture when it comes to the church and its relationship to the world. For many centuries, not the early church, but close after, third, fourth century, Church uh, experienced an expectation that it would be at the center of culture. And this was true not only uh, in conception or in worldview, it was true in architecture. Because many of the cities that you would see in Europe at the time, you could walk around and you would see a church right at the city of the center block, wouldn't you? Some in our own country. And it was, uh, in some ways, an analogy for the world that we knew. The church was the center of things. Christianity was the center of Western culture in specific. But as we've seen, that has changed, hasn't it? We no longer feel like we're at the center. We feel like exiles and foreigners on the margins sometimes. And it's a new space for us to occupy. And this is also seen in architecture in our cities. Because if you were going down to downtown Dallas, you'd see churches dwarfed by larger skyscrapers now, wouldn't you? And I don't think this is just an accident of architecture. I think this is also the way the church has found itself kind of dwarfed by other enterprises and culture as well. And I think what we want more than anything else, because we've known and tasted that power, that central place, is we want to wiggle our way back into it. We want to find a way for the church to be central in culture. And I think this might be the very problem that Scripture wants to deny us of. To see that actually this was never the task from the start. We want things to go back to the way they once were, and Scripture's not so interested in that. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, I have some definite views about de-Christianizing of the, the de-Christianizing of the church. I believe that there are many accommodating preachers and too many practitioners in the church who are not believers. Jesus did not say, go into all the world and tell it that is quite right. The gospel is something completely different. 
In fact, it is directly opposed to the world. As I said, most of us would do anything to go back when things were the way they once were. But I'm not sure that's the task that Scripture's interested in. If you have your Bibles, keep a finger in Genesis 12, but turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. It's this passage about faith and what it means to be the people of God, many examples of faithful people in the past. Hebrews 11 in verse 1, let me start reading there. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Now that's not quite the best sales pitch that I could come up with if I were going to try to bring someone to faith in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews says, look, look, if if you're going to be a Christian, what you're committing to is a confidence in what you hope for. It's an assurance about what you can't even see. There's nothing tangible. There's nothing that we can put our hands on and say, this is the truth and we have empirical data behind it. Now, I believe that there are reasons to believe in Christianity. I've committed my life to it. But the Enlightenment gave us an understanding of knowledge that said only things that can be proven to be true with empirical data, those things are true. And so we have the scientific method that was a way of deciphering what was true and not. You have hypotheses and you test those hypotheses and you discover what's true and what's not true. And when it comes to faith and the description that Hebrews gives us, that's not exactly going to work when it comes to faith. Because there's nothing that you can do to say, this is true, here's the empirical data, I ran the test, there it is. No, faith is assurance of what we cannot see. I mean, I remember geometry class, and I remember trying to figure out, how do I get my geometry teacher to believe that this is the way it is? She taught me this way, but I had to show proofs to prove the points I was trying to make, right? And it just seems that that's lacking a bit when it comes to Christianity. And I'm just wondering if that's maybe not the task at all uh, of of what this whole thing called faith is supposed to be. Because we want Christianity to be easy. We want it to be mainstream. We want it to be conventional. But it is not. Christianity is foolish. And this is the way Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you'll turn with me. We read this passage last week, in fact. It says there in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now last week we talked about how uh, this being saved is a part of God's continual salvation of us, right? That that we're not just saved in the past or saved in the future. That there's a process of salvation in our lives. But I want you to notice the first part of this. Paul says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those in the world, to those who are perishing. Now to us, it makes sense. To us, it's conventional, but not to those in the world. Drop down uh, to verse 22. He says, Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. In other words, there are people out there that want to see signs that Jesus is who he says he was. So let's produce them. No, that's not what Paul says, right? Or there are people who are looking for wisdom, and we can provide wisdom to them. He says, no, that's not what we do. We preach Christ, which somehow is not wisdom or science. We preach something altogether different. I don't know what to do with that exactly. Because I'm kind of paid to get up here and try to speak something that makes sense to you, not to say, well, I'm just preaching foolishness this morning. This is what Paul told me to do, right? 
But Paul believes that this is the message of the, cro- of the cross, that Christianity is in some way foolish to those who are not yet a part of it. And I think we face this, and we know this as we share this message with others at times, don't we? That at times it makes sense and others connect and they become a part of the story, but at other times it makes absolutely no sense and we're made to look not mainstream, not conventional, not cool. And I think part of the reason we want Christianity to be cool is because we desire to be cool. Which is something you know that I try to do the first Sunday I walked up here and he said, how long into his 30s is he going to try that hairstyle? See, I've always wanted to be cool. I remember back when I was, uh, uh, I was a big golfer and I was a fan of several golfers. One of them was David Duvall, who is nowhere now, not so cool anymore, right? But, but he was a huge golfer and he had these wraparound Oakleys that were the coolest thing that he wore at that time. And so I was like, I got to find one of those with his Titleist hat. Maybe I'll be good. So I saved up my money and I bought a pair of sunglasses, Oakley wraparound sunglasses that are not popular anymore, I guarantee you. And, and, and I put those on. It was $175 I'd saved up and I, I I, I tried them on one time, and I tried to read putts, and I couldn't read putts because the, the lens was so dark. And I, I still have those on my shelf to remind me of how uncool I really am. Same thing was true in middle school. Now, some of you are going to be like, this never was cool. Okay, Colin, you had the wrong idea. But the coolest kid in school, he wore a bucket hat in, in the 90s. So I thought, well, if I'm going to be cool, i got to buy me a bucket hat. And I put that thing on, and it was not cool, let me tell you. Still have it on my shelf as a reminder of the desire to be cool, and it never seems to turn out. In fact, this happened, well, just a couple of weeks ago. I was trying to be cool again, right? And I went to the Apple store, and they had a line that was forming. And so I thought, well, let me get in the line. And so uh, I got the slip saying, you're going to get an iPhone 6. I thought, this is cool. I can finally be one of the cool people. You know how long it took me to get that iPhone 6? 13 hours. That's not so cool. We have this desire to look cool, and it seems like every time we try to do it, it just looks stilted. It looks like a mistake of some kind. We don't turn out to be cool. Uh, We just look like we're trying to be like someone else. And I think Christianity's done somewhat of the same thing, haven't we? Or tagging on to any athlete we can or any person of influence. If they can be Christian, then finally we'll be mainstream. I mean, just look at the, the last decades of Christians trying to produce movies that would become blockbusters, and look at the embarrassment that is. Because we just don't do art like the rest of the world does, it seems. We just kind of put it on display and call it Christian and call it good. And we don't put out what we should when it comes to this because we have a desire to be mainstream, to be conventional, to be cool, to make Christianity have a voice again. Well, Hebrews 11 tells the stories of several people of faith. It starts out talking about a guy named Abel. By faith, Abel, and it goes on. By faith, Enoch, and it tells that story. By faith, Noah. And then finally, by faith, Abraham. And this is what it says in Hebrews 11. Drop down to verse 13. Talking about those people I've just mentioned. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. Again, not a great sales pitch. This is the hall of faith. These are the best ones that we have to offer. And what happened to them? They died without being, seeing anything happen that they'd hoped would happen. They died with faith, which means they never saw it actually come to fruition. The good news of 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. The reason love is is there and it's the greatest is because faith and hope will one day pass away. One day hope will be no more because the thing we've hoped for is present. That the kingdom is here, that Jesus has returned. 
But this whole faith thing, it's a struggle to understand exactly what it means because here's Abraham, and it's great that he was faithful, but he didn't get to see the eternal city he was longing for. Neither did any of these others. See, we want Christianity to be conventional, but it is not that. Which brings me to the story of Abraham. Abraham enters the scene at Genesis chapter 11. And if you think back on the story of Genesis, this is not a great story so far. Humans have kind of messed things up. God creates a good creation. And then in Genesis 3, there's the fall. In Genesis 4, the first brothers, they don't get along and Cain ends up killing Abel. Violence increases on the earth until in Genesis 6, when God decides we're going to start this thing over. We're going to have a a flood and maybe a new set of people will be able to get it right. And they don't get it right. As we wind up in Genesis 11 at Babel, and what happens? People come together, they unite, but for what purpose? Not to honor God, but to draw attention to themselves, to make a name for themselves. So we come to Genesis 12. And God's got this dream. Let's, let's, let's have a, a piece of humanity, a family, a group of people, a tribe that will live out my good news for the world. A contrast community that looks so different from the conventional, cool ways of living in the world. So I can just imagine this conversation. Abraham uh, is, is, or is this guy that's living there. He's named Abram at the time and Sarai. And God's having this conversation in heaven. I'm just imagining this where he goes to the angels and says, I got this idea. I want there to be a new set of people, a tribe that's going to live the way I want the world to be. They're going to put this on display to the world. So who's your best couple? Who would you choose if you had one couple to choose? And one of the angels steps up and says, oh, Jason and Mandy, okay? Oh, Jason and Mandy would be perfect. They, They eat right. They're strong Christians. They exercise. They have four kids, so populating a nation won't be a problem. And God says, no, I don't think it's Jason and Mandy. I think it's, I think it's Abram and Sarai. And the angel's like, are you kidding me? Abram and, they just got their AARP card last week. And they don't have any kids. In fact, I saw them, they were shopping for walkers last week. I was there, I saw it with my own eyes. Not Abram and Sarai, and God says, no, I I think it's Abram and Sarai. 140 years of lived experience together. No kids, and this is the one that God chooses. Because God seems to always use the people we would never choose for his kingdom. So he chooses Abram, and as the story goes on, we pick it up in Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and and, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now this is a tough calling. Because Abram hasn't known who this Yahweh character is yet. He hasn't shown up on the scene and revealed himself. So here is Abram, and, and, and what's the call? I want you to leave. I want you to go. I want you to leave your family and your household and your country, everything you know. I want you to leave that and go to a land I'm going to show you without an itinerary of where that is. And Abram, what does he say? Well, let's read in verse 4. So Abram went. It's kind of like the disciples on the seashore with Jesus, right? Jesus says, would you follow me? And they go, yeah, I'll follow you. And you're thinking, who are these people? Just give up their lives to follow God? But this is what Abram does. Abram follows God's call. He just gets up and goes. Talk about faith. This guy has it. And God continues to show up in Abraham's life. 
He's known as Abram and Sarai, and then they become Abraham and Sarah. And as the story goes on, he's not a perfect person. He has faith, yes, but he's not a perfect person. Two different times, he, he calls his wife his sister so that people don't take her from him. She must be real beautiful. And so he lies about this to protect himself and, I guess, kind of Sarai, right? So he does that twice, and then along the way, he ends up uh, sleeping with his wife's servant at his wife's suggestion. By the way, if your wife tells you to do this, don't do it. It turns up in a mess. But here's the picture is, is, is this is what happens. And then what happens? They have a child. And what happens to the child? Well, Abram doesn't really take good care of him. Just kind of sends him off and God promises, well, I'll take care of him. And that winds up in a whole mess we're still dealing with centuries later today. No, he's not a perfect guy. He's not a poster child for family values. The family that follows from Abraham is a mess. You got Isaac and Esau. You got, you got Jacob and Esau. You got Isaac and Ishmael. You got, you got a mess in all these families. This is not the way to raise your families. Don't use Genesis as your family values tour, okay? This is a mess. And they had to have learned some of that from Abraham, don't you think? But God used him despite all that mess, despite all the background. He's a man of faith, and he does his best to follow God. But then we come to a scene in Genesis 22 that I never heard about growing up in my children's Bible or in my VBS story. And if any of you struggle with faith and doubt, I'm just guessing this is one of those passages that sent you to that place of doubt. Genesis 22, it's a story about a a guy named Isaac and a calling that God has on Abraham to do something to Isaac. This is what it says in Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain. I will show you. Now, what do you do with that passage? That doesn't sound so respectable or conventional, does it? And to be more specific, what kind of God would ask a man to sacrifice his son? In Genesis 12, God asks Abram to go, and what does Abram do? So he went. That's what we read earlier, verse 4. Well, here it comes in Genesis 22. God calls him to do something. What does Abram do? Well, let's pick it up in verse 3. Early the next morning, Abram got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. He does the same thing he does in chapter 12. He follows God's command which is a little troublesome because if I had someone come into my office this week and say, you know what God's told me to do? He's told me to go sacrifice my son. I'd say, okay, stay right here. I'm going to call CPS and we'll take care of this. And that's the struggle about having a book that has some order and wisdom to it that I sometimes don't understand and wouldn't at all make sense in my everyday life. As a pastor, it would be my job to protect that child in that situation. But the Bible says go and Abram goes. So what does Abram do? Well, he continues up the mountain. So in Genesis 12, when Abram follows God, we call it faith. But what would you call it in Genesis 22 when he follows God? Foolishness? A lack of wisdom? I mean, if this passage doesn't bother you, you're not paying attention. Because it's one thing to say you'll obey God no matter what, and it's another thing to cut up some wood, to take some stones with you, to build an altar, to tie your son to that altar, and to raise your knife. Let's be honest, how many of you would even cut up the wood? 
mean, this is, this, is, this is a troublesome passage. And if any of you struggle with doubt, I'm guessing this is one of those passages that you're going, how do I trust this God? But there's more to the story than you see at first glance. Give me a moment. I want to talk about the history of religion. And this may seem like no connection, but I think this will tie up nicely in just a moment. The history of religion started with an idea that humans had to have things to survive, which is a pretty obvious thing, food and, and so forth. And so, of course, there's sun and there's rain that's needed in order for your crops to grow so that you can eat and be sustained. Well, along the way somewhere, someone came up with a religious idea that maybe there are forces out there that are beyond our control that somehow uh, take care of us through the sun and the water. These are the gods that you hear about in Roman myths and so forth, right? You've got the sun god, you've got the god of storms, you've got the god of fertility, all these things. You come up with these gods, and, and the idea is that they'll take care of us. But what happens in the year where you don't have the crops? You begin to question, is there a way that we can appease these gods? Maybe these gods are actually angry with us, and we've got to do something in order for them to give us what we need to survive. So this is the way religion developed, as people begin to make sacrifices to these gods. There's an anxiety about this. What do we have to do to make these gods happy? And so they sacrifice a crop, and, and the next year things go well. But what happens when the year after that sacrifice that you gave wasn't enough? The gods are still angry. Well, then you follow along and you give more of your crops, right? Maybe we didn't give enough. So you give more of your crops, and then eventually that fails. So what do you do next? Well, you offer a goat, don't you? And then maybe a goat's not enough, so you offer a cow, or maybe more cows, or maybe you offer some birds, and eventually you come to the end of this process and you realize, I can't seem to get these gods to do what I want them to do. They're still angry. I can't appease them. So what's the biggest thing that you could offer? It's a child. And this is where religion got to. If you look at the religions around Israel, all of them are involved, many of them are involved in child sacrifice. This is always a question for Israel. Are they supposed to be involved with this or not? So when this story comes up in Genesis chapter 22, the surprising part of this story is not that God asks Abram to sacrifice his son. That's the expectation in this time period. Remember, Abraham doesn't, hasn't known Yahweh before this. He's getting to know them from chapters 20, 12 to 22. So when he asks him to sacrifice his son, it's not like this is an odd thing to Abraham. That causes a crisis of faith for us. But in that time period, that was just the most normal thing that would have been asked. So Abraham does what he's supposed to do. He gathers the wood, he gathers the stones, he builds the altar, he does everything he's supposed to do, and he gets up there, and that's when the surprise in the story happens. All of a sudden, the question that I asked earlier comes to a different answer. What kind of God would ask a man to sacrifice his son? The answer in Genesis 22 is, not this God. This God is different from all the other gods. This God is actually trustworthy. This is a God who doesn't demand all these sacrifices so he can be appeased and he's angry with us. No, this God is far better than that. This God is the God who doesn't demand anything of us. He actually offers us what's needed for our sin to be appeased. And on the same mountain, Mount Moriah, where Abraham's supposed to sacrifice his son, later on, hundreds of years later, we see a God show up who doesn't demand a, 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 a man to, doesn't demand a man to sacrifice his son. He, de, he demands that his own son go to the cross on our behalf. So this is a foretelling, a foreshadowing of the greatest story that's ever been told. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we look at it, it creates a faith crisis because we're like, what kind of God would ask that? But the story is actually so far different from this. This sounds like an archaic story, doesn't it? How could a God demand that? 
But if you understand it in the context it's told, and if you understand it in the time period, all of a sudden you begin to realize this is not an archaic story. It's the most progressive story being told at that time about who God is. This is a God who doesn't demand sacrifice from you. He doesn't even want sacrifice. He wants your heart. And this is what the new covenant provides and what Jesus provides for us. You remember in gym class when they dropped the rope down and you had to climb the rope? That was the worst class for me, right? I could never do that. I never had the upper body strength I needed. And so the other kids could do it. And that's the story of the gospel is God doesn't drop a rope down so that we have to climb up to heaven. God drops a rope down and sends his son Jesus down on that rope to take care of everything that's ever needed for us to be with God. And that is good news. That's a God I want to worship. That's a God I want to serve. And this clears up so many things. And let me just say this morning, if you struggle with faith and doubt, maybe this is a story that you've struggled with. But let me say this as clearly as I can today. The opposite of faith is not doubt. We often talk about it that way, that on one side of the spectrum, you've got faith, and on the other side, you've got doubt. So if you have your doubts, you must not be a faithful person of God. Now, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. Because as the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews 11, verse 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the assurance of things that are not seen, which means that Abraham died, probably still having some doubts about how this story was going to end up. And I have to wonder for those of us that doubt and think that counts us out of this story, if maybe doubt is proving that our faith is still alive in some way, that it's still got a humming reverence to it, that God's still doing things in our lives, that when you lose doubt and you take on certainty, which some of us were taught growing up, were we not? We were certain about everything. Uh, We knew we had everything right except our eternal destiny. We weren't so sure about that. But this God is far more trustworthy than the story some of us grew up hearing. This is a God who doesn't demand sacrifice. This is a God who's willing to give up his own life, his own son's life, so that we might be saved. This is a God who's trustworthy. So today I don't offer any proof for you or empirical data. The Enlightenment tried to get us there, and I can't get you there this morning. But what I can offer you is a story that I've bought into, and I'm willing to give my life to all the way to the end. This trustworthy God in Genesis 22 is the same trustworthy God who shows up in our lives in the most unexpected ways. And uses us not when we get rid of our doubts, but even in spite of them all through the process. And that's the gospel of Abraham and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together as we close our time. God, I thank you so much for this, uh, this good news in the story of Abraham. I learned it growing up and it was a good news about a man of faith. A man who followed you wherever he went. And God, I'm grateful for that story because it's still the story. Our children's Bibles were right. But the more hopeful part of this story for me was when I began to realize that these troublesome parts of Scripture, like this calling for Isaac, is actually a way that you've been far ahead of us. You're not a God who's in the past, who's archaic, who's uh, from a time in the past. You're not conventional either, God. But you are good. And you call us to this good news. And this morning, God, wherever we find ourselves, would you allay our doubts? Would you allow us to put our faith back in you today to know that you are trustworthy and you do keep your promises and that we can be as certain of our salvation because of the gift of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Colin. God is good. It's good to be here, and we thank everyone for being here. 
Um, a couple of things that we want to uh, take to our Father in prayer as, as we leave, and, and if you would, please continue to remember these things. Uh, Sandra Ford's God is worth worshiping. So this morning, I don't come to you to give you any kind of proof that God is who he says he is. I can't possibly do that. But I am here to say that I believe that this God is trustworthy that he's worthy of our praise, that he's dropped down Jesus to give us salvation and new life and eternal life in the here and now and beyond. And I hope you'll join me on this journey as well. Amen? Let's pray together as we close out. God, we thank you so much for the story of Abraham. And I remember growing up hearing stories about his faithfulness, and certainly he was faithful. But God, this was not a perfect man in any sense, and this was not a man that you... You gave every proof possible of who you were, God. You, you called him out in faith to do things that he didn't know and didn't know you in that context, God. But you proved yourself faithful in the most difficult of moments. And later on that same hill where Abraham didn't end up sacrificing Isaac, you were willing to sacrifice your son, Jesus. So God, we want to put our faith in you again, God. If we've struggled with doubt, which I know there are many in this room who struggle with this whole thing, God. I just pray, God, that we can put our faith in you once again, not with assurance or certainty, God. That's impossible on this earth, God. But one day we're going to see you face to face. One uh, one day things will be so clear, God, compared to what they are today. And God, I pray that you would give us glimpses of eternity today, that that the church would live in such a way, God, that we'd give that glimpse to the world so that you're faithful. You may be unconventional and it may sound foolish, God, but you are who you say you are and it is good news. So God, we rest in that sovereignty of yours today, God, to know that you're above all things. And, and while you may not control everything and, and everything doesn't happen at your, in the way you want it to in this world, God, your kingdom is coming and advancing. And we want to submit ourselves to that. This morning, God, we, we thank you for Jesus, for your willingness to sacrifice him so we didn't have to sacrifice any of ours. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, Thank you, Colin. God is good. A lot of the time when we pray, we have people that we're praying for that are uh, in relationship problems, health problems, things like that. Uh, But we also have a lot of things to pray for where there is praise to God. Uh, A couple of those this morning. I believe... um, Uh, Stephen and Jenny Morgan will be at the second service, but they will be hopefully bringing Caleb Tucker with them, their uh, new son, uh, who was born recently and will be joining uh, Brody and Ryder uh, in that family. We want 